Scripture reading for today comes out of Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you welcome Dr. Bohus. <laughs> I reject that. Um, that's a very long-winded way to say, if you're a guest here, uh, my name is Bo, as you heard. We're so glad you're here. Do not judge this church based on my preaching. Come back next Sunday, and uh, you can judge it based on Josh's or whatever you'd want to judge it based on. But it really is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. My wife, Kimberly, and I are here. And, um, you know, uh, you don't know me, most of you, but uh, I know you. Uh, maybe not as individuals, but uh, I, I know of you. Uh, I have heard and hear often of your faith and hope and love from Josh, and I get to pray for you regularly. I get to pray. Uh, our congregation gets to pray for you. In fact, this morning, our church and both of our gatherings uh, prayed for you uh, again. And uh, I lived in Portland, Oregon for, um, you know, 
about four years, and this was you know maybe 20 years ago, and, uh, and I'd often come up to Seattle and visit, and I specifically can remember, I don't know if I told you this, but I can specifically remember coming to this neighborhood and sensing 20 years ago and praying, it's like, man, it would be, it's needed. Uh, a faithful, healthy witness is needed in this neighborhood. And so, you know, as Josh is talking about the overlapping of worlds, certainly I feel that this morning, not just in the sense that I'm here with him and with Kyle and Jess and um, just seeing this congregation, but also even that memory of 20 years ago, and I'm not attributing this church to my prayer 20 years ago, as much as I just want you to sense it's, it's a beautiful thing to be here for me. It's really kind of an emotional thing for me to be here for all these reasons. And so um, I'm just really, really grateful. And uh, I just want you to know uh, I, I love, um, you know, the Searcy family, the Norvell family very much. And for them to leave our church was a significant thing. Uh, we miss them very much. And yet to, to be here among you is to understand what through tears and joy we sent them out to do is to be with you. And so it is, um, it's a consolation of my heart to, to be among you and to get to see uh, you know, what it is without really knowing some of the details uh, we've sent them to do. And, uh, and your pastor, um, I know he's one of your pastors, <clears throat> uh, and there'll hopefully be more on the way, but um, he loves you very much, and he is a good pastor. And so thank you. I know uh, even just talking over here, of nobody expects to come here to be an associate pastor and then in the middle of the pandemic be asked to be a lead pastor. Um, but those are the kinds of things that happened during the last couple of years. And, uh, and so thank you for loving he and Courtney, and certainly for the way you've welcomed the Norvells, not that you did it for us. I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful for you in that respect. And I hope to be able, as we look here, uh, <clears throat> which will really be more of a extended meditation on Mark 10. Uh, I know you're in the middle of uh, slowly but surely moving through uh, the revelation at the end of the Bible, and I'm hoping that this can kind of be an excursus that connects in as an extended sort of meditation on, uh, on for many of you, what might be a familiar story of Jesus and, uh, and this, what is often referred to, this rich young man. And, you know, as you think about what, you know, I know some of you have been in and out, especially over the summer months here in the Northwest, by the way, sorry, I brought the clouds with me. I was really looking forward to not 108 degrees, but about 80 degrees in sunshine. And uh, there's not a lot of sunshine, so that's okay. I'm working through it. Uh, having lived here for a number of years, I recognize that that's normally um, something that uh, is to be expected on most days. But, uh, you know, as you think about if you've been in town and you've been journeying through Revelation, you know, one of the things that's made clear in this revelation that's at the end of our Bibles is that Christianity, one way to think about it, is that it's a resistance movement, which might surprise and perk up the ears of some of the neighbors here. Uh, it's a resistance movement centered around our ultimate allegiance or worship. And in fact, having studied and taught through Revelation, you know, if there's two words that would probably summarize the, the main message of Revelation to the church, it's these two words of resist and persevere. And it's really these seven churches over and over and over again, so many different ways through all these different images and, and things that you guys will get into. They get a little bit weird in places, but they really can be summarized by these words of resist and persevere. Resist the pressure and resist the temptation to, to give our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance to what, as you'll read as you go through Revelation, is, uh, is sort of symbolized by a dragon or even beasts. Uh, this 
giving to Caesar what is God's. Resist that is one of the main messages all the way through. And resist by persevering in allegiance to God and to his land. So it's this message of you're resisting the dragon and his beasts and you're persisting in your allegiance. You're persevering in your allegiance, not to the dragon and the beasts, but to God and to his lamb. So follow the lamb. Hold on to our testimony and our witness. This is really the heart of the message that's proclaimed to us. And you've sensed that probably as you moved through, maybe not in that language, but you've moved through even the messages to the seven churches, these first three chapters. And I was struck again, reading chapters one through three, how many times the phrase patient endurance is used. If you just later on this afternoon, you want to reread Revelation one through three. I mean, again and again and again, the message of patiently endure, patiently endure, patient endurance. And, uh, And yet... How do we do that? Which I know is a big part of what you guys are gonna all the way through process, but, but practically speaking, how do we patiently endure? How do we resist and persevere? How do we hold on to our witness? How do we hold on to our testimony? Having come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the world's true Lord, and that he has through his own life and his own death for our sins on the cross and his own resurrection from the dead and his own ascension to heaven and, and even now sending his spirit, but especially as he's seated at the right hand of God, he's conquered Satan. That was some of the language from last week's passage, right? That Jesus has conquered Satan and that he has now sent us his own spirit so that we could conquer like him not by doing the same things that he did in his death and his resurrection and his ascension and such, but, but we can conquer with him by resisting and persevering in our allegiance to him. And yet, how do we do that? How do we live in Babylon without being of Babylon, right? That's, that's one way to think about it. How do we be a city of God's people? How can you as a church be a city of God's people within the city of Seattle who are living as citizens of the heavenly city, even as you're here in this city. And, uh, and so that's what we wanna think about today. And again, it's, it's meant to be an extended meditation on this passage in Mark 10 and an excursus and hopefully, obviously, connects to what you've been walking through and will continue to walk through in Revelation. And I wanna just um, read, maybe some of you've heard this quote, David Foster Wallace, he's a late author, Um, This was a pretty famous speech that he gave at a graduation ceremony, and he said this about worship. And again, he's speaking not as a Christian, he's an atheist. He said, quote, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. He said, the only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. He says it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
He says, on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches and bromides and epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping that truth up front in daily consciousness. And he returns, you worship power, you're gonna feel weak and afraid. And you will ever need more power over others to keep the fear at bay, which some of you know that experience in your workplaces and other places. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, which we might take some disagreement with, but it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing, end quote. And though not a Christian, uh, I think Wallace offers us a host of insights here, and one of the primary insights that he offers is this, is that not only is every person a worshiper, he got that right, but our worship is so normal. It is so ingrained into the daily rhythms and expressed in our daily habits that most days and moments, we're not even aware of it. We're not consciously aware of where our treasure is, we might say, to use Jesus's words, and of therefore where our hearts are aimed at. And so in other words, you might say that our worship, who we are, or rather who or what we give allegiance to, our worship is rooted in and it's nurtured by our habits. And what we know about habits, and some of you at your workplaces, you've gotten to read and think a lot about habits because your workplaces know that that is a good way to make things more efficient and productive and all the things that uh, really a lot of our desires are aimed at in this culture. But what we know about habits, and a lot of people are saying as such these days, is that habits, they're less like conscious decision, our habits are, and they're more like the default mode, as Wallace put it, of our daily pattern of life. In other words, we don't have to think about our habits. It's just what we do. They're second nature to us, and that's why they're called habits. In fact, some of you may have read, um, I know Atomic Habits is a book that's out. Duhigg wrote a book called uh, The Power of Habit, and this was uh, many, many years ago, and he quotes from a 2006, I'm sure there's more recent surveys, but there was a Duke University study that found that more than 40% of actions that people perform each day aren't actual decisions, but habits. And, uh, and he says this in his book, he says, quote, when you woke up, the, he said, when you woke up this morning, what did you do first? It's like every time I read this quote, reread it, I'm like, I don't remember, which is his point. But he said, did you hop in the shower, check your email, grab a donut from the kitchen counter? I tried to go get a donut at a store, but they didn't open until nine, so that wasn't good for me. But he said, did you brush your teeth before or after you toweled off? Did you tie the left or the right shoe first? What did you say to your kids if you have them on their way out the door? Which route did you drive to get here? When you got here, what did you do first? He talks about work. When you got to your desk, do you deal with your email? Do you chat with a colleague? Do you jump into writing a memo, salad, or hamburger for lunch? When you get home, did you put on your sneakers or go for a run or pour yourself a drink and eat dinner in front of the TV? And on and on we can go. And his point in asking these questions is for most of us, like, I don't remember. I don't know. Even if I were this, hear this quote this morning, you want to think about it, it's like, I still don't know whether I tie my left shoe or my right shoe first. 
But I'm sure that I probably tie one more than the other more regularly. And, and that's because, you know, even William James, who's many think is like the father of American psychology, he once wrote, he said, quote, all of our lives, so far as it, as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits. Now, I think that's overstated. But again, his point is well taken that we are creatures and we're creatures of habits. Our habits are a way that God has designed us, actually, I think, to be able to get through the day without being overwhelmed and crushed by constant decision-making. And some of you love making decision after decision after decision. Others of you don't. But can you imagine if you had to really consciously think through every single decision you had to make, such as these ones that we just went through? Do I brush my teeth first or do I do that? What would, like, do I tie this shoe or do I tie that? Like, that would be overwhelming if you just had to think about your, your circuits mentally and otherwise would be overwhelmed. And the reason that these habits, as we're creatures of habits, they get formed and they become so ingrained in our pattern of life and then become so powerful, as many are noting now, is because habits actually create neurological cravings. That our habits cultivate desire in our lives. And most of, these most of the time, these cravings, they emerge so gradually that we're not even really aware that they exist. Again, they're formed underneath the hood of our conscious, so to speak, so we're often even blind to their influence in our lives. But whether we're conscious of them or not, our cravings and desires, and with them, as we think about Revelation, our allegiance and our worship are slowly but surely being trained and shaped by our daily habits. And so as one writer observed, our deepest desires are actually the ones that are shaped and manifested by your daily life and habits, which as we think about the Christian life, as we think about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the city of, of the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation as, as we're here in this city, that has massive and intensely practical ramifications for resisting and persevering in our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, for walking by his spirit. Because what this means is that not only does our desire and allegiance shape and determine what we do, but what we do, and particularly our habits, shape and determine what we desire. It's not just inside out. It's also outside in when it comes to what our hearts are aimed at, and you think about here in Mark chapter 10, this rich young ruler, did you notice, as Josh read the story, that to get to this man's heart, Jesus told the rich young man to go do something. He instructs him literally to do something different with his money, with his literal treasure, than he had been doing, we assume habitually, with his money. And I wonder if it's not because Jesus understood that by doing something with his money, which was the man's true Lord, the object of his highest allegiance and worship, that Jesus knew it would begin to reorder what this rich young man's heart treasured, right? It would begin to reorder his allegiance and his worship because Jesus, I think, understood that the ways that this young man habitually was interacting with his money and his possessions, it was shaping his ability to resist and persevere. And Jesus, in case we missed it, he told his disciples here that changing that way of life, did you hear when he said changing that habit, that way of life, 
is very difficult. The way that this man, the habit of life that this man is operating in and the way that he's treasuring his possessions and his literal money, his little treasure, man, to, to change that way of life is really difficult, which is why in the story, this, this young man, he walked away sad because he understood what Jesus told him, and yet he walked away sad because he said it was too hard. And it was too hard because Jesus wasn't asking him to just mentally assent to certain theological truths in his mind, as important as that is. It wasn't an existential conversation where Jesus was going, well, your problem is you're thinking about it this way. You need to think more about it that way. No, the reason the man walked away because Jesus asked him to do something, not just think something, but to do something that was really, really hard, that was against the grain even of his deepest desires, his desires that had been formed by his ongoing habits, and he was unwilling to resist his desires by changing those habits. And I think even as some of you are nodding your head, um, I think we can all relate to this. Even just in uh, what may seem like sort of secondary or tertiary areas of most of our lives, right? You think about working out. I know that uh, Seattle, like many uh, urban centers, I mean, there's, there's a lot of you probably, uh, a lot of your neighbors that are very into working out, even just to survive in various ways, that that's something that they, they quite literally run to. And yet, there's many people who don't work out, even in a place like this. And the reason that most people don't work out consistently as a habit is because deep down we desire something else. I don't wanna do that. That doesn't sound as fun to me as doing this. That doesn't sound as easy to me as doing this. And, uh, and yet, I mean, again, I, I meet people that really, they love getting in shape. And I'm always confused when I meet them. So if that's you, love to meet you and hear your story about that. Um, because for most of us, again, it's like, no, I don't, I, I'm never gonna want to do that just as a matter of starting. And, and yet, uh, in 2002, a group of researchers, they, they sort of set out to answer what then gets these people to this place where when you meet them, it seems like they were just born to run. Uh, and they're like handing out that book is like a holy grail or something. And it's like, well, the, these researchers found that, that people who consistently work out, they did not start exercising because they had a spontaneous burning desire all of a sudden to work out. But what the researchers found was that the desire to work out was actually cultivated by their habit of working out. In other words, they didn't want to work out. They didn't start that way. They may have forgotten that later on. But they didn't really start that way. But once they got into a habit of working out and found that working out and eating better made them feel a certain way, well, then the habit of working out developed into a desire to work out. In other words, the habit came first. The desire followed. Right? They did not desire to work out, and that's why it became a habit. It became a habit, and that's now why they desire to work out or eat healthier. All, of, all these other things, you can fill in the blank. And so if our allegiance is oriented ultimately toward what we treasure, then it's profoundly important for us to understand that our daily habits as they lead us and then become associated in our minds with experiences of pleasure and rest and comfort and safety and meaning, that our habits are dramatically shaping our allegiance. Again, the things we do are doing something to us and they're either tuning 
the songs and directing the highways of our heart toward Zion, toward the new Jerusalem, are toward Babylon, toward the city of God or toward the city of man. And I don't mean to make that, you know, reductionistic in such a way that it's completely either or. That's not what I'm saying. But I think you understand even rhetorically what I mean by that. And every day, though, what I want us to sense is that this training and this tuning and this directing of our allegiance, of our worship, it's happening not just on encounter night, as wonderful as that's going to be. And as hard as Kyle's work to sort of put that together, you know, you guys are going to start doing that quarterly. That's wonderful. And it happens there as well. But it's also happening fundamentally in the daily routines, in the cultural practices that we are immersing ourselves in, in our lives. And oftentimes, again, we're not even aware of it. And so part of what I'm hoping to just sort of serve you toward is to help you become maybe aware of some of these things. And, uh, and again, in that same commencement address from uh, Wallace that I talked about earlier, he opened that entire commencement address, maybe you've heard this, with a parable where he said, quote, here's the parable, he said, there are these two young fish and they're swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. And the older fish nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, What the hell's water? That that's us. Our lives are so immersed in our daily habits and in the cultural practices in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our relationships and on and on we could go and the allegiances that are therein that we have just like this rich young man we're, we're not even most of these habits and the allegiances that they're forming we're not even aware of them and every day these habits and these practices they're doing something to us they're strengthening or they're weakening our resistance and our perseverance they're, they're shaping our allegiance they are forming or deforming our loves even, which means that our worship of God and our allegiance or lack thereof to God are being shaped day by day in places and ways that we don't even realize. And again, it's not just our allegiance to God, it's our allegiance to all sorts of things. And again, those of you that work in advertising, you know this, like you're tapping into this. Those of you that work in marketing, you, you like uh, every time I, I sit in front of the television, or often, then let's say every time, overstate that, but you know, I'm trying to help my children understand, I have four children, and uh, uh, I, you know, and there's certain ads, I love them. You know, Little Caesars, you guys remember Little Caesars? Some of you like remember it. It's like, well, my day, it was there, and then it wasn't there, and now it's back. They've got a great ad campaign right now. I'm not really sure what it is. It's like they're skipping pizzas across the lake. I think they're just trying to get you to think that they're cool and funny. But, uh, but one of my favorite campaigns that was maybe five years ago, I can't remember, some of you may have worked on it actually, um, was a, cam a campaign for Amazon where um, there was one in particular where it was like they're browsing and they're looking at furniture. Whatnot. This guy was looking at like a leather jacket and then as he looked at it on the site, it was the, the, this Casey and JoJo song came on and he was imagining himself in the leather jacket and the songs going over and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, he just gets caught in this daydream and then he just clicks the button. And of course, it's a wonderful ad and I'm stopping with my children going, what's it teaching you? Besides the fact that anything you want can be transported to a different world, one click away, one button away, we've made it as easy as possible for you. What are, what are they training you to, to, to think? And it's, well, they're training us that if I had that leather jacket, then I would be somebody. You know, and they're trying to win over, based on those desires, our allegiance and even the habits of clicking that button again and again and again. Uh, or you think about even just, 
you know, I mean, the easiest one, I got it in my back pocket. This preacher shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. That's a bad example. But, but I mean, <clears throat> truly, for all that was haunted about him, uh, Steve Jobs was brilliant in so many ways. And I hope that's okay to say. I know this is like Microsoft land up here. But, uh, but uh, I, I think he, in the sense that even if only intuitively, and some of this came from him being adopted in his life story, maybe some of you have read the biography, but he really understood, I think, intuitively, at the very least, how desire worked. And he knew that there would be something formative and addictive about the intimacy of interacting on our phones in a certain way, that you really, you don't just touch your phones now, you know, you, you, you caress them, you hold them. Like some of you, I mean, we feel like, it, 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 like it's a part of us. We nurture it, and, and I think that he knew that, and, and the habit of interacting with our phones in this way, it's taught us that really we're the center of the world, that we should never be bored, that we should never have to wait for anything, that we should always be entertained and have what we want at our fingertips the way we want it, when we want it, and this is actually philosophically, it's called egoism, and, uh, and yet, the way we learned, all of us, and that we're learning to be egoists is not because a philosopher sat us down and convinced us intellectually, we were just given a phone. And in ways we're not gonna be aware of for generations to come, our phone habits doing this and this and this habitually again and again and again and again, they are shaping our desires. They're not just helping us to get done what we need to get done. They're doing that as well. And again, I'm thankful that I have a map in my pocket and all those sorts of things. I don't have to print out map quest pages like I used to. I'm really grateful. When I lived here in the Northwest, that's what I had to do. I had to print out the map quest to figure out how to get over to Kirkland or wherever. And, and yet in ways that we're not gonna be aware of, man, we're, we're being trained how to relate to God, how to relate to each other, how to relate to the entire world. And, uh, and certainly some of you are probably even in the industries where, man, you're starting to reckon with this a little bit, or at least there are voices that are wanting to um, here and there. And yet the point being, whether it's advertising or just all of our habits, the things we're doing, and a lot of times without even thinking about doing them, they're doing something to us. Yes, our actions and our behavior, our habits flow from our hearts, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said this. And yet it's also true that our hearts, our loves and desires and allegiances are being shaped by what we do, by our habits, again, in ways we're not aware of. And you think about the rich young man here. Based on how he responded here in Mark 10, I don't get the sense that the rich young man was even aware of I could be wrong, but I don't get the sense that he was even aware of his love for and his allegiance to his money and his possessions before Jesus pointed it out. I mean, Jesus' instruction here is what made the man feel like a fish out of water. It's what made the man realize that actually he was in the water he was in. And for that man, as for us, that was a necessary first step if this young man was ever going to truly desire much less enter the kingdom of God. This first step of this man reordering and redirecting his hunger and his thirst, transferring his allegiance from his money and his possessions to God so that he could enter the kingdom of God was him recognizing 
And then acknowledging what he craved, recognizing and acknowledging that money and not God had his ultimate allegiance. And Jesus helped him see that. And so for us today, a whole congregation here who's striving together in this city to resist the pressure and the temptation to give our allegiance to, as Revelation will put it, as you'll come to see the dragon and his beasts, and to persevere in your allegiance rather to God and to his lamb, a practical way that we can do that to sort of step into the same moment that this young man had with Jesus is to be regularly asking ourselves and maybe more importantly one another, what do we want? Like if Jesus were to observe the habits that are shaping the desires of your heart and my heart, and if he were to say to us individually, but maybe even to us as a congregation, like he did to this young man, you lack one thing. That's what he told the man. You lack one thing. Go and fill in the blank. What would he say to you? As an individual? But then collectively as a community, what, what would he say? You lack one thing. What, what might he say? And not, I'm, don't hear this and like I'm the outside voice coming in to like preach judgment over you. Not that that would be a bad thing. Apparently I did that to Josh his first time. I talked about him not being a Christian. I don't remember it that way, by the way. But, but I think Jesus loved this young man. I, I don't really think he wanted the young man to walk away sad. I don't think he was offering his direction to him spiritually so that the young man would walk away. I think he was offering it to him and love and saying, man, you're really doing well. There's, there is a lot going for you. Some of you, maybe that's your life. Man, you're here, you're in the city, you're in your career, it's on the up and up. Things are going well, just one thing you lack. Jesus would say, just one thing. Let's talk about this one thing. And, and so maybe here I could just ask you some questions and it'll help you think through that, not just now, but this afternoon or when you guys are at the ballpark watching the Mariners. I'm an Astros fan, we can talk about that later too. Um, but what's shaping you, for, for you, What's, what's forming you day by day? What are your routines? Good, bad, presumably neutral, if that can be the case. Like, where do your habits abide day by day? The way you speak, the way you think, the way that you see and hear others, the way that you're interpreting the world. In, in what ways, and maybe we could ask toward what city, are these routines and habits tuning the songs and directing the highways of your heart? Because they are. I don't know how you spent your day yesterday. Some of you I do. Um, most of you I do not. But again, I'm, I'm not saying even negatively, but every, what we're doing, especially those things we're doing habitually, they are tuning and directing the highways of our heart, either toward Zion, toward this new Jerusalem that you'll be reading about in Revelation, or toward Babylon. And so what, what even cultural practices, either through work or just subcultures you're a part of, what cultural practices are you immersed in? And, and what kind of person do these practices want you to become? These groups, these affinities. Again, what, what do they want you to become? What do they want you to love? What kingdom are they really aimed at? What, what treasure are the habits of your home and your budget and your conversations and your free time oriented toward? 
And on and on we could go. I mean, it's kind of like an a, 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 a audit of your habits, so to speak, and not just what you're doing, but where they're aiming your affections as they're doing something to you, as they're forming you. And obviously these questions, as I said earlier, they're not probably gonna be best answered here rhetorically as I'm asking these questions in this room, but as you walk through your daily life and routine and habits, and I wanna encourage you, maybe as you, summer's a good time here. I know there's, there's extended space, wide open spaces in different ways, relationally and otherwise, but maybe this summer it would be a, a significant time for you to be maybe especially attentive to this sort of line of questioning in your life and, and even to do that with one another, to pray that God would over this summer help you to recognize the patterns of your life and to perceive how they're shaping your affection and your attention and your allegiance. And then as you do that, that you would be filled with hope by the truth that God's grace through the loving leadership and power of his spirit can change you. Like God, you, you, we can change. Like as we think about our habits, it's not like, oh my gosh, we learn that we're addicted in this way or we're inclined so much in this way and it's like, I, I don't know how I'm ever gonna, it's like, no, 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 no. That, that rich young man Jesus was talking to, Jesus assumed he could change. In fact, he told him to do something that was a change. And you and I, as we think about and audit our habits and think about how we want them to be aimed maybe in a different direction, we can change as well. Our, de our desires, the habits that are shaping us aren't fixed and immutable, right? And, uh, and certainly, even Kyle and I were talking earlier about in Revelation, like what you read through Revelation, it, it leaves Revelation among all of, it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible, but it leaves no room for a sort of passive view of affection or allegiance that kind of maroons us, as one put it, on an island of innate desire. Like, I, it's just how I am. I can't help it. Certainly, we can talk about some of those things neurologically, but, but in terms of what Revelation is saying and what it's doing, I mean, an assumption all throughout is we can change, right? The churches that they're, he's saying, stop doing this. Start doing this. And I know for some of us, that can make us a little nervous in our Christian life, depending on your theological heritage or your background, but it shouldn't make you nervous, it should make you hopeful, because if you're currently addicted to something, if there are ways that your habit of life is enslaved to or more in step with the spirit of this age or the spirit of your workplace than the spirit of the Lord, then you can take heart, because by the spirit of the Lord, the highways of our hearts can and we might say will be ultimately redirected toward the song's of Zion. With man, it might be impossible, right? This is what Jesus says. He turns to his disciples and says, that's really hard. With man, that is impossible. To change that habitual way of interacting with his money and his things, that is impossible. It's like easier for a man to go through an eye of a needle, right? Which is impossible. That's Jesus's point, but not with God, he says. For with God, all things are possible. God has not simply left us to the mercy of our phones, He's not left us, left us to the mercy of our desires. He has sent us his son who lived for us and died for us in our place and was raised for us and who has now sent us his spirit and he offers us in sending us his spirit hope in reminding us that man, our desires, they're, they're cultivated truly. They're not immutable and because the Holy Spirit now dwells, if you're a Christian, dwells within you, we can trust that the spirit will and is about 
changing our affection and strengthening our allegiance toward the Lamb as we resist and persevere. As we resist and persevere. And especially as we do, through, do so through giving ourselves to particular patterns and practices, habits of worship. And obviously, even you being here is a part of you doing that. This is a habit of worship. You coming on the Lord's day, the day the Lord was raised from the dead to do what you're doing. This is, whether you know it or not, it's, it's not just the checkbox of something that's important in your life. This is a habit that is doing something to you, whether you're resonating with what I'm saying right now or not. Just you getting up, driving your car, being here, saying hello to one another, all the things you've done is shaping you. It's why this gathering is so crucial. And maybe especially in the summer when it's so easy to be somewhere else that's amazing. And certainly there's no law to that. It's just, it's important, as is your community group and all the other habits. And, uh, and so I just wanna encourage you, you can change. And yet what Revelation is gonna tell you is you can't be passive though. That if we live by the Spirit, we actually must walk by the Spirit and we must not go back to slavery, as Paul would put it in Galatians 5. And again, I think, you know, I'll end here, but I think many of us, again, maybe, I don't know all of your theological backgrounds, I'll just say my own background, that I was taught to think that unless, and maybe I taught myself to think this, let me be fair, that unless our desire for God is a natural, spontaneous sort of explosion of my heart, then it doesn't count then it's not genuine. Like, in other words, if there's any work involved, any effort that I have to put in, then I'm somehow drifting away from God's grace. And brothers and sisters, if that's you, and maybe, maybe it's not, that was me, that's just simply not true. Hear the good news. That is just simply not true. Abiding in allegiance to Jesus as we walk by his spirit and bear the fruit of his spirit, it requires us to work. It requires us to work out our salvation with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. That yes, it's all by God's grace as his spirit ministers to us and yet by God's grace we must walk by the spirit if we want to bear the fruit of the spirit. And one of the first steps we take as we learn to walk by the spirit is the step that we're attempting to take this morning which is the step of discovering and admitting what we want and even more fundamentally the step of recognizing that the practices and habits of our lives are what is shaping our desires deep down. And as we learn this, and the more that we learn it, well then actually at community group, we've got more things to talk about. We've got more things to pray about together. We've got more things to celebrate. We've got more things to share. We've got more examples to follow as we spur one another along in love and good works. And so, um, I cannot be more grateful for there being a church here in this neighborhood and for you being this church. And uh, if that sounds weird to you, again, I just, I love your pastors, um, the staff I'm getting to know, and I'm so eager. I know that you, as a congregation, some of you just, in fact, how many of you are just here new the last six months? No shame in that. Okay, so most of you are not. Most of you have been here for a while. Maybe you're like, well, seven months, you know. Uh, <laughs> but you've been through a lot as a church. I mean, 
Everybody's been through a lot the last couple of years, and every church in particular has had to work through some things, but man, the transitions that you guys have experienced in the midst of uh, you know, COVID and everything else that's gone on, not just in our culture generally, but even here in this city, you know? Neighborhoods where you moved into, where people were protesting for however many, you know, uh, you've been through a lot together. And so in this season, as you take a deep breath this summer and as you prepare to continue to press in, I just, I will be praying as I've already been doing that the spirit of the Lord will lead you. And if you've kind of been on the fringes here and wondering, uh, I mean, I know church is important. I, I love Jesus, but there's a lot of things that are going on. Well, I just would encourage you, maybe nudge you a little bit to and jump into this community. And you guys, as the Lord leads you to practice what you're already practicing, but then even to think about maybe some of these things that you have a unique opportunity this summer to do as you take an audit of your allegiance, an audit of your habits. So let me pray to that end, and then you're gonna come? Okay, then that's all I'm doing. I just wanna make sure. Well, Father, I do thank you for these dear saints, these brothers and sisters that you have brought to this city, some of them from nearby, from Tacoma, but others from Chicago and Cincinnati and Texas, and that you have brought to this neighborhood for such a time as this, which sounds so whatever it sounds like, but it's just true, God. And to think about all that you had to, all that you have done in our lives, most especially revealing yourself to us such that we've believed the gospel, but that you've done in our lives to lead us into this room this morning on this block, in this city, it is marvelous. And so I just pray a blessing over this congregation, Lord. I pray your spirit would fill them and that together as they think about resisting and persevering, resisting and persevering in their allegiance to you, that God, you would teach them and form them and show them like you did that rich young man through Jesus. He rejected it, but I pray you would show them in such a way that they would not reject, but they would actually enter into more fully the way of life. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.